1: Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. Today, I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Georges Benjamin. He is the Executive Director of the American Public Health Association, and he is known as one of the nation's most influential physician leaders, because he speaks passionately and eloquently about the health issues having the greatest impact on our nation today. From his firsthand experience as a physician, he knows what happens when preventive care is not available and when the healthy choice is not the easy choice. Dr. Benjamin is a graduate of the Illinois Institute of Technology and the University of Illinois College of Medicine. He is board certified in internal medicine and started his career in 1981 in Tacoma, Washington, where he was chief of the acute illness clinic at the Madigan Army Medical Center. He was also an attending physician within the Department of Emergency Medicine. He later moved to Washington, D.C., where he served as chief of emergency medicine at the Walter Reed Army Medical Center. He was acting commissioner for public health for the District of Columbia and directed one of the busiest ambulance services in the nation. Dr. Benjamin served as secretary of the Maryland Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, where he oversaw the expansion and improvement of the state's Medicaid program. He serves as publisher of the American Public Health Association's official monthly newspaper and one of my favorites, I might add, titled The Nation's Health, as well as the American Journal of Public Health. He is the author of more than 100 scientific articles and book chapters, and he has received numerous awards. His recent book, titled The Quest for Health Reform, a Satirical History, is an expose of the nearly 100 year quest to ensure quality, affordable health coverage for all through the use of political cartoons. Welcome, Dr. Benjamin.
0: Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here.
1: I had the opportunity to meet you in person at the Association of Healthcare Journalists meeting in Orlando, Florida last spring. And I was so delighted to meet you. And I said, you know, you don't know this, but I actually use a quote of yours in presentations that I give. And the quote is, the food we eat and how we grow, produce, market, and distribute it have enormous implications for the public's health. Thank you as a physician for recognizing the importance of food and agriculture.
0: Well, no, glad to do so. Glad to do so. And that quote, I think, is accurate.
1: I think it is as well. And I know that this year's American Public Health Association Annual Conference is scheduled for Atlanta, Georgia, early in November, and it is going to focus on climate change and public health, and so I hope to dive into that. But first, let me just ask you a little background question. How did you become interested in medicine, and what was it that led you to medical school?
0: Great question. I, literally, I, I had no interest in being a doctor. It wasn't anywhere on my radar screen, but I wanted to be a gene splicer. I was going to go in a lab and worry about genetics and you know all the kind of stuff we now know about biotechnology. But going to medical school was a way to get a good basic science background, to be able to do that kind of research, and I just fell in love with clinical medicine. I didn't know what to do with myself. I said, you know, have got to put research aside and, you know, take care of patients.
1: Right. But then from clinical medicine, you moved into the public health realm. What were the situations that led you to make that decision?
0: You know I've been practicing emergency medicine, and one of the things you do both in the Army and then at a public hospital, which is where I was at the former d c general hospital, was you know you you begin to recognize that uh, you had to work with populations that if you wanted to fix things in health, you really had to go way upstream. so I was really minding my own business one day, and my phone rings, and the mayor's on the other end of the phone, and this is the mayor in washington d c and says, "Have I got a job for you and initially, I thought he was talking about coming to run the ambulance service, but no, the health commissioner was leaving and he wanted me to take that job, and I saw that as a a very unique opportunity for me to put my imprint on health policy and really to begin, you know, dealing with the population of people who were really challenged. I mean, the city had uh, 600, 500, 600,000 people who were having drive-by shootings. There was a lot of violence in the city, high infant mortality rate, high poverty rate, growing HIV-AIDS epidemic, and so he called, and the rest, as they say, is history. It was just an an, an amazing opportunity, and even more importantly, I got to work with an amazing group of professionals Mm -hmm. um, to try to do that work, and so I knew a lot of the folks, and the opportunity to work with them, I just couldn't pass up.
1: Well, you've been with the American Public Health Association since 2002, and I suspect you have seen a lot of changes and challenges during those years. Are there certain components of your work since 2002 that you want to make sure our listeners know about?
0: I think the thing that's impressed upon me the most is the need to be active in your community, to just not let stuff happen to you, to recognize that the reason the water is safe to drink and the air is safe to breathe and the food is safe to eat because of a group of silent people that work behind the scenes to make sure bad things don't happen to you. Uh, and we don't celebrate that enough. And so I've learned that um, through my work at the American Public Health Association, how important those folks are. You know, I was an ER doctor. So, you know, ER doctors, we get praised because we get to see very, very bad things that happen to people. And we have the privilege of, tragically though, but have the privilege of fixing it when something goes wrong. The public health folks get the privilege of preventing it in the first place,
1: Mm -hmm. but they don't get
0: celebrated enough. And so for them to allow me to join their ranks to participate in that process uh, has just been an amazing opportunity.
1: You know, it's funny. I had the same situation occur in my own career. I started out as a clinical dietitian at the Veterans Hospital in Columbia, Missouri, and I, too, recognized that, oh, wait, I wanted to go farther upriver, and I wanted to work in prevention so that I didn't see the catastrophes that I was seeing every day in clinical practice. So I absolutely understand where you're coming from. You know, I read an interesting article, I think it was in the press within the last month or so, about the Mediterranean diet and how beneficial it is, but only for those of a certain socioeconomic level. So in other words, we have to look at zip code. We have to look at a person's income in order to further assess what we think might be happening to their health status, either presently or down the road.
0: You're right. You know, the challenge we have is that, You get someone into the doctor's office and you examine them, you find out what their list of clinical challenges are, you write prescriptions for medications, you give them information, you very commonly um, send them to a nutritionist or someone to help them think about how to eat better. And then, of course, they leave your office and, in essence, life undoes everything you just talked about. Right. they live in a community in which access to safe, affordable foods is not there. If you want to go to the grocery store, you got to take a, you know two buses and a train to get there. And the pictures we see of mom or dad carrying you know big bags of groceries walking from the grocery store home in many of our communities is just not an option. And so that that gets undone, no matter what you tell them in the doctor's office.
1: And Mm -hmm. so that's an
0: example of the kind of of, of social determinant that we have to fix, and the, the health community has to be part of that solution.
1: Absolutely. And it seems like there is great energy in Congress to prevent some of the very basic steps that we need to take. You know, we've been looking at the Affordable Care Act and all of the attempts to dismantle that. We've looked at how many efforts to increase minimum wage. So people can afford to buy healthy food rather than having to depend on a food pantry. It seems like we are constantly struggling, certainly in the three decades I've been practicing, that it's a constant struggle to just maintain a certain dignity or level of social justice in our nation.
0: I'm a strong believer in individual responsibility, but I'm even a stronger believer in community responsibility. We have a responsibility to help our neighbors. And increasingly, we're in a society in some communities where that's just not happening. And that's, that's unfortunate. And I just think that we should recognize that for what it is. And it is not living a life of helping your neighbors. And everyone says, well, you know, the, the churches will take care of that and the social systems will take care of that. If you, if you go back to the movie, of of Mr. Scrooge, everybody has seen that story and understands that it's more than the social systems that are going to take care of those folks. We all have a responsibility to help.
1: That's right, and certainly policy is at the heart of that, and the American Public Health Association has terrific webinars and policy updates so that if people want to be involved, you make it very easy for us. Now, I, I sang the praises a bit of Our Nation's Health, which is a fantastic newspaper. And when it arrives in my mailbox, that is the first thing I do is I sit down with it and savor the articles. There's something in it for public health workers, but there's also great how-to strategies, how to have a healthier life. I think the August 2017 issue, which I have here with me in the studio, has a call to action to garden for better health. So good tips that we can use in the public health community. But I want to bring our attention to the focus of the annual conference, which is climate. Climate change seems to be something that, you know, we have stronger storms. There's a great debate about man's influence. What are we doing? Can we have an impact? Is it too late? Do we think about climate change enough when we talk about public health?
0: Well, let me address some of those issues. First of all, climate change is real, and it's here today. It's not something that's out in the future. Number two, humans are a major contributor by things that we do as a contributor to that change. The scientific community is very clear and universally agrees with that assessment. And while there are certainly a small subset of naysayers that are out there, they're just wrong. With that in mind, the question is, what do we do about it? And if you don't believe me, just open up your eyes. Look and see what's happening. We're having warmer summers. We're having longer episodes of weather instability, um, both on the heat side and the cold side. We call it climate change because it does not just get warmer as the planet warms, but you then have, because environment is variable, you do have um, lots of cold. Uh, environment as well, so you have bigger snowstorms, and places where the environment has changed so that farmers are seeing the impact it is on their crops. People are having who have never had really long periods of warm weather are now seeing heat waves that they didn't see before, uh, and that is because of the, the climate change that we're seeing, fundamentally the warming of our environment, and from a health perspective, it dramatically impacts our health. From access to food, from exposure to cold, exposure to heat, the whole range of environmental conditions that become exacerbate allergies like asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. All of those things are directly impacted by the change in our climate.
1: Mm-hmm. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined today by Dr. Georges Benjamin. He is the Executive Director of the American Public Health Association. And the annual meeting this year in Atlanta, starting November 4th, 2017, has a focus on climate and health and there's a great website if you'd like to learn more about climate change and health it's www.apha.org/climate dr. benjamin let's delve into some of those health consequences related to our food and water system so with flooding for example i remember early on in my career when i was working in extension we had a major flood and there was so much destruction. It wasn't just homes that were destroyed or water systems that were disrupted. There were contaminants in flood water. There was a problem with mold. People had to throw food away. There was lots of food spoilage as a result of electricity loss. I don't know that we have truly thought about the devastating consequences of more and stronger storms as related to climate change. But I'm sure APHA has.
0: Well, we have. And we continue to talk about the importance of preparing for those kinds of things. You have to prepare for the worst. So that means thinking about what your risk is. Where do you live? And what are the risks that you're going to incur? Are you in a flood zone? Are you now beginning to see warmer temperatures? And do you now need, in the past, you didn't need to have air conditioning in your house. You now need to do that. You have a backup generator because you're having more and more severe storms in case the, the core power goes out. Those are the kinds of adapting to climate change we have to do, but there are also a whole range of things that we can do as individuals to begin the mitigation, that is figuring out how to use less power, using less fossil fuels, um, switching to um, energy-saving um, light bulbs. Yes, they cost more money, but theoretically, they, they last much longer. And and thinking about our own individual we call carbon footprint so that you're using less energy, recycling, simply being part of the recycling process in our communities, helps us with waste, helps us reduce energy use, are very, very important. We know the auto industry is moving to more and more hybrid cars, electric cars, and that's part of that process of so as we're getting to think about what we're buying and buying appliances, buying automobiles, doing things that we control to, again, reduce the amount of energy that we're using or the type of energy that we're using.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think we have to make it the right thing to do so that there is social pressure to take these steps. I think you've probably been in audiences where you talk about the environment and somebody will say, oh, you're an environmentalist, you're a tree hugger. How do we speak to people so that we can change policy and get people to accept the fact that climate change is indeed real, as opposed to believing that this is just a bunch of work done by tree huggers and environmental activists, as if that's a bad word.
0: I'm certainly a tree hugger, but I also like to hug people. I like to, you know, as a physician, I very much am concerned about the, the health of, of my colleagues and myself. And with that in mind, I try to make the discussion personal. I, I need to remind people that, yeah, we care about the polar bears, yeah, we care about the melting of the ice caps, but, but at the end of the day, we care about those things because of the ultimate impact of climate change on us, on our individual health and well-being, the health and well-being of the people we care about, the health and well-being of our children. That's where it's personal. And unless we do something about it, we're putting those folks at risk. And that's why, why we continue to argue here at the American Public Health Association That if you don't do something about it, then you are really neglecting your responsibilities to make sure that the future is there for your kids. And, you know, if you have a kid who has asthma or you know someone who has asthma, um, we're seeing a rise in, in asthma for a variety of reasons, but climate change is one is part of that process.
1: Yeah, I thought it was interesting. I heard a climate scientist speak about increases in allergy and asthma related to increasing CO2 levels and the impact on certain crops or plants that were, like, for example, species of plants that were more likely to lead to hay fever, for example, They were fueled. Poison ivy, I think, was one of the plants that we can expect to proliferate under changes in climate with increased CO2. Do you have any other examples of what kinds of changes we might see in the environment so that we can connect those illnesses with changes that we're experiencing, that we might not connect those dots?
0: Sure. A great example is the ecology changes of our environment if it's warm and continues to get more wet, you're going to see more mosquito-borne diseases. So Zika, which has been on the media quite recently, dengue, chicken um, these are all diseases that are passed on by mosquitoes, as an example. Lyme disease, you're going to see more West Nile virus type of diseases. These are diseases that thrive in warm environments, and as again, they're not... May not, that particular mosquito may not be resident in your community today or any of these other disease vectors, but as the environment changes, the ability of those organisms to thrive in your community become more and more, and then, of course, the infectious disease list becomes more and more.
1: Right. I saw that on the speaker list that will be at the American Public Health Association's annual meeting, you have individuals from really underserved communities, indigenous individuals who have connections to tribal communities that are often forgotten. I know that when we speak about climate change, for example, when we look at what's going on in Alaska where we have warming climate and changes in cultural ability to, you know, we lose our cultural food habits because, say, we can't hunt and fish the way we used to, for example,
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, communities that have been living for hundreds of years on a particular diet. that diet may change, uh, particularly when you know they eat a lot of fish. Well, that may change if they're not able to fish. The fact that they're losing their you know, crabbing waters that's their job. They're out crabbing, and as the crabs and lobsters' habitat changes, then they move elsewhere and Of course, those people who do that kind of work lose their jobs, and they, frankly, are in in trouble for that. People who have to change it, you know, they've had a certain diet for, for many, many years. Those diets now change because they don't have access to those food sources they had before.
1: Right. And then again
0: for the farmers who actually impacted their businesses because their business changes because they're unable to grow the kinds of crops that they had before.
1: Exactly. And then that gets back to the whole socioeconomic component of public health. And when people have lost their ability to earn an income, how that impacts the health of their families and communities.
0: No question about that. And increasingly, this becomes a a political discussion that it doesn't need to be. It just doesn't need to be a political discussion at all. This is not about politics. This is not about people that are on the progressive side or the conservative side you know obviously i i believe climate change is real but even if you don't you need to support your community to address severe storms um, you know the adaption part of this the mitigation part of this that stuff is real and we don't have to approach this through a political lens we need to approach this through a lens that says how are we going to help our communities do what they need to do
1: Right. Well, another one of your speakers comes from the Gullah community in South Carolina, and I'm assuming that people who live in areas that are closest to the coasts, where they have ocean water rising, will probably be some of the first and hardest hit, as well as those of us living in Midwestern or the central parts of our nation where we have, as you mentioned, Droughts, stronger storms affecting the crops that are produced here, but people who are living in these oceanside communities, I think we can expect migration and again the loss of not only culture but the loss of their homes.
0: Yeah, the the erosion of the, of their lands. You know, one of the things that we watched when I was in Maryland, this was years ago, the state health department was the islands in the Chesapeake Bay, and we're watching them just erode and wash away, and That's a big deal. And what you're seeing now in these coastal communities as their historical land is just going away. You know, they've had these, these, again, this land for hundreds of years, and now because of sea rise, it's just going away. Mm -hmm. That's a problem.
1: Yes, it is. And uh, another issue that I know the American Public Health Association looks at is infrastructure, aging infrastructure as well as the ability of infrastructure to handle floods, and how that affects community wellness.
0: Yeah, you know, when a flood hits, of course, uh, I think you talked about it earlier. Um, not only do you get the, the loss of your personal belongings and stuff in your home, but then, of course, you get mold, and that's an expensive repair. You've got to relocate because of the mold in your home. You have to, um, sometimes it contaminates your well, your drinking water, So your access to water um, may go away. Even if your house is fine, um, your well may be ruined. And that's a big deal. And even just the ability sometimes for the kids to go out in the lake and play because you just got a high bacterial count in those lakes after those kinds of storms, that can become a quality of life issue. So life safety issues, quality of life issues, and then the property loss that goes along with the flood. And then remember that this is not just a often a one time event quite often it's a recurring event the flood occurs every year or every other year and you know people just cannot manage that from an economic perspective
1: right and you have to wonder should we stay you know should we rebuild or should we migrate and there is an expectation that there will be large migrations as a result of climate change I don't know if we can fully appreciate all that we'll be witnessing in the decades to come.
0: We, we can. And, you know, one of the sessions we're going to have is going to talk about forced migration from climate change. And you see that. You also see that when people start having to fight over space and land, then you, you have violence and war uh, over those kinds of things. So this is, this is not a, just an inconvenience. it it can be a significant societal issue.
1: Exactly. Dr. Benjamin, I want to give you an opportunity to speak to our listeners in the few minutes that remain. Are there any issues that are, in addition to climate change, that are near and dear to your heart that you would like our listeners to know about and perhaps take action steps?
0: Well, you know, we obviously are, are very supportive of the the Affordable Care Act and the expansion of healthcare coverage that our nation has benefited from. And I never want to get into a big debate about people, but I just, I just encourage people to do their own homework. Certainly don't, don't even listen to folks like me other than to listen to the fact that I want you to do your own homework. Don't listen to people that tell you something is good or something is bad. In the health arena, I've learned that it's best for all of us, you know, that are activists to take the high road. Tell people where they can get the information, encourage them to get the information i 've learned clearly that people are very smart, and when you when they find out the facts, then they can engage with their um, policymakers and their resource allocators and and just don 't lay back and let these folks do do the things that they do to us. Um, you need to be part of the solution
1: absolutely, and I want to commend you again for the American Public Health Association, and thank you for celebrating those workers who really make a difference in people's lives every day. The American Public Health Association also has a food and environment working group, of which I am a member. The website is fantastic, and I think when it comes to, you know, you mentioned do the homework. It's hard to do the homework when there are all of these alternative facts, for example. But I have found the American Public Health Association's website to be extremely valuable in teasing out the truth backed by credible science by, and from people who truly care. So thank you very much for that. Thank you. Well, in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Georges. Benjamin, Executive Director of the American Public Health Association. He is known as one of the nation's most influential physician leaders because he speaks passionately and eloquently about the health issues having the greatest impact on our nation today. Dr. Benjamin, once again, thank you for being my guest. And we want to make sure that people know that they can go to the American Public Health website for more information. That's www.apha.org. Thank you for your time.
0: Thank you.